If you have a brain, you have bias. So let's just own it. Some biases help us by simplifying our decision-making process. Other biases hold us back by impacting who gets hired and promoted, and even who we approach to be our friends. Welcome to Breaking the Bias, a podcast where we interview impact makers who are breaking the bias when it comes to inclusion and equity. Because sharing our stories is how real belonging happens. That's when we're dealing with guilt and regret and all of that stuff. And it's because maybe in that particular area of your life, you lack some self-awareness, which is perfectly fine. You get to study yourself. We should all be getting an opportunity to study ourselves. We go to college and spend four years in undergrad to study a subject, right? But we never get that time to study ourselves. Today, Consciously Unbiased founder Ashish Kashal virtually sits down with Dr. Linnell Plummer, CEO of Onyx Therapy Group and professor at John Hopkins University for an unplugged conversation about what self-awareness really means, why it's a key component of emotional intelligence, and how building it can improve your relationships at both work and home. They also discuss how leaders can better support their employees' mental health during the pandemic, how to reframe productivity, and much more. Now on to their conversation. How do you define self-awareness exactly? about self-awareness in its most uh, basic form around awareness of yourself, awareness of your thoughts, awareness of your feelings, awareness of the, the things that negatively affect you like triggers, but also the things that, ca- that allow you to have joy. I just recently bought a new car and the, the genius came over to teach me about the car, right? He came over to the house today And he was like, well, do you know about this button and this button and how to use this button? And if you touch this button, it affects this particular thing. And as I was thinking about what we were going to be talking about today, I was like, that is what self-awareness is. Self-awareness is knowing all the buttons. It's knowing what to push, what not to push. It's knowing um, what to say, what not to say. It's knowing what connects with what and why. And, And there's a process that comes along with that. But I think that self-awareness happens when we are intentional about learning ourselves. And unfortunately, in our society, we don't take enough time or effort to actually learn ourselves. We spend a lot of time learning our bosses, right? Like there's books about how to manage your boss or how to work with your boss. There's books around, you know, how to be in a relationship with your spouse or how to get to know your children and their love languages and their personality types. But we don't necessarily spend enough time getting to know ourselves. In fact, some people call that selfish when we just want to be by ourselves to get to know ourselves. Mm -hmm. But in actuality, it's an investment. So when we're spending that alone time getting to know ourselves and processing what makes us go and what makes us pause, um, it's actually an investment into ourselves, an investment into our relationships with others, an investment into our careers, an investment into our futures, and overall into our mental health, which affects so many other areas of our life as well. So I guess, again, in basic terms, it for me, self-awareness is knowing all about yourself that you can know. So do you think that stems in us being honest about each other, about ourselves? Because I think a lot of reasons we're not self-aware is because we don't want to face our truths. Yeah, right. That ego is such a big thing, right? Like, in fact, from a mental health perspective, we, we actually are trained on egos, right? Ego me- uh, me- mechanisms, ego defense ego uh, maintenance and all of that, all of that stuff, primarily because the ego protects us from um, spiraling out of control. 
Unfortunately, some people's egos are so big that it actually is counterproductive, that their ego is what causes them to spiral out as opposed to attacks on their ego causing them to spiral out. Uh, so yeah, I think that a lot of people are in denial about who they are. They don't want to be perceived negatively. And that's because again, in our society, we put so much effort around negativity um, and, and, and that anything that looks bad or feels bad, we, um, we don't want to be associated with it, right? When, yeah. when in reality, they're really just lessons. They're just lessons about self. They're lessons about others. There are ways that we can improve and move forward. So I do think that a lot of people avoid the exercises and the activities related to self-awareness or the time and the exclusion that's related to self-awareness because they are afraid of what they're going to find mm -hmm. and, and not necessarily know if they have the tools to adjust accordingly. Yeah. So what's the difference yeah. between internal and external self-awareness? Yeah, I don't know about this external self-awareness. I think I need to study that a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Self-awareness tends to be more internal because it's about the self. If we think about external self-awareness, I, I would assume that it has more to do with how people perceive you yeah. and then subsequently tell you who they think you are. Mm -hmm. The challenge with that, though, is that we, we should, yes, indeed be listening to what people say that they experience with us with, and who they think we are and how they think we navigate the world. But that should not be greater than what we think and know about ourselves, mm -hmm. right? Um, which means that we spend a lot of our time in relationship with other people because we are humans, right? And humans um, vibe, even introverts vibe off of some sort of interaction with other people. We come from a human. So it makes sense that we want to be around humans at different points. But external perspectives of ourselves can actually be quite concerning because it means that we're putting the power in people external of ourselves to define ourselves. And whenever we let somebody else define us, we become a puppet to their experience with us as opposed to the puppeteer that, it, that controls ourselves. So we have to be careful with how much weight we put on the ex how externally people define us. It should be a factor, it should be part of the equation, but maybe it should be like a 70-30 as opposed to a 100% external, you know? Yeah. The reality is, is that we have to increase our own internal self-awareness before we can even really consider what people are saying about us. We have to have a, a baseline, a measurable baseline for ourselves in determining who we are before we introduce other people's perspectives of us. So how does self-awareness play out in the workplace, both from a perspective of leadership and then inclusivity? In so many ways, right? In so many ways, because who you are is what you bring to the workplace. You know, you bring all of your confidence and your insecurities. You bring your skill set and you bring your deficits. You bring your emotions. Even if you are skilled, very skilled in emotional regulation, the emotions still arise. You just make the choice to regulate. But you bring all of your emotions forward. Um, you bring all of your past experiences forward. And the more that you know about how you as a system, you as a mechanism, how you work, then it's easier for you to navigate the work experience. But if, if one is lacking self-awareness, then they don't understand why their boss's comments upset them so much. 
if one is lacking self-awareness, they don't understand why they are why they're not productive at this particular time of day because they're lacking their understanding around their peak hours or they're lacking their understanding around their triggers or they're lacking their understanding around what makes them feel appreciated and whatnot. When I'm preparing students to go out into the, into the workforce, because one of my courses that I often teach is internship. And so I'm teaching them just two, one to two semesters right before graduation. So we spend time talking about interviewing and that they need to be inter, they are, they are the interviewee, yes, but they also need to be interviewing that company, right? They need to be asking, they need to be showing elements of themselves through their own self-awareness and asking questions to ensure that this is an environment that they actually want to work in themselves, right? And I recognize that at different points, that could be a place of privilege because some folks are interviewing because they have to have a job right now. They're not necessarily looking for job satisfaction per se. They're more so looking for um, just income. But the more self-aware we are, the better equipped we are to be productive in a workplace, to be satisfied in a workplace, to have positive interactions and relationships with others, especially in this time of day, because we used to compartmentalize jobs, right? We used to say, this is my work life, this is my home life, this is my personal life, et cetera. But now because of COVID, there's this blend that's happening um, across all the industries. So we can't just isolate, um, this is how I act at work. No, you have to start bringing your full self to the workplace, which means you have to be aware of who your full self is. Now, you know, I could talk about this stuff all day. So if I start rambling, you got to just interject here. <laughs> I think this is all amazing stuff, but I think from a practical standpoint for the users, can you give me two examples of how you um, overcome your ego to actually become self-aware? Like, what are two things I can do? Our feelings are the indicators of, of they're, they're indicators of measure. So I think the first thing to do is to step back and say, how am I feeling in this moment, right? Like, what is my actual feeling in this moment? True indeed, sometimes we're limited to what our feeling, what we think feelings are. Like we oftentimes just use happy, sad, or mad, mm-hmm. but there's so many more things like confused or frustrated, et cetera. But if we step back and we think about what am I feeling in this moment, then it'll indicate to us if our next response is based on ego, right? Because when we are feeling low and we have a a low register for that feeling, we tend to overcompensate by, by increasing our ego response. So the first is, this is how I feel. How am I feeling in this moment? This is how I feel. And then the second step would be, now what do I actually want to do? What, what, what are my options and what decision do I want to make? Sometimes people are impulsive and so they act on their ego in an impulsive way and then later they feel regret about it. But it's primarily because they moved a little too fast. They forgot to ask themselves a few questions like, what am I feeling in this moment and what do I actually want to do? I think for for leaders, we have to give space for people to, to take time and figure that out. Everything doesn't have to be answered immediately. Sometimes we need a few minutes to actually think about what we're feeling. It's that metacognition, if you will. Yeah. Think uh, about what we're thinking. Yeah. And if you think about it, um, from a practicality standpoint, if you can get your um, self-awareness up, you'll make you a better leader, which will actually 
it's kind of improved and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, but I think having a strong EQ is probably even more relevant to success in the workplace than IQ. Yeah, absolutely. Daniel Goldman has an amazing book called um, Emotional Intelligence. And when I first started my company, I had um, my staff members reading the book and, and incorporated into their therapy that they had with clients, but also incorporating it in terms of how we interacted with ourselves. And at the time we had, at the time we were reading it, we had a president, um, we, we were recalling a previous presidential administration where the president was known for not having good grades in school, but was still very charismatic and was able to become the president of the United States. Mm -hmm. And this is older administrations, not anything in most recent years. And it was, it was interesting because as Daniel Goldman talks about in the book, People want to be around people who understand them, who have compassion for them, who, um, who are passionate themselves, but who also just enjoy being around people. That's who you want to be around. And, and when, you want, when you get that, when you get that, that feeling of belonging, or you get that sense of being understood, you tend to be more productive, right? Yeah. Because you want to continue to have this positive relationship with your boss. You wanna to continue to have this positive relationship with people who care about you. So you work harder and you do more. So it is true that many leaders need to have a higher EQ than IQ. Your IQ only works in your own individual lane of intelligence. It doesn't work in your interactions with other people because everybody is not impressed by your intelligence, but people are impressed by how you treat them and how you make them feel. Yeah. I mean, I think you kind of answered this question, but I'm gonna ask it in a different way anyway. <laughs> um, the author of Insight and Organizational Psychologist, uh, Tasha Urich, um, found that 95% of people are self-aware, but only 10 to 15% truly are. Um, beyond the ego, do you think there's other reasons around that? <laughs> yes, I do. Uh, I think that people, it, it sounds good to say I'm self-aware, right? It's, it seems like, Posh. It seems like, yes, I know who I am and this is wonderful, right? And, and all those things. And so everybody wants to say they're self-aware because who wants to sit in a conversation with five people who say they're self-aware and they're the lone person that says, I'm not self-aware. I don't know anything about myself, right? <laughs> like people will be like, what's going on with you? You look crazy. You sound crazy. At least lie to yourself, right? So, so I, think, I think that because our society likes to make everything so positive, um, then we want to always show up and be the best. And sometimes that being the best means that we're self, we, we say that we're self-aware, but we're not, right? Yeah. And I know that most people are not self-aware. I know it because, because it just is what it is, right? Like many people are still struggling with their awareness. One of the beauties of therapy is that that is, the safe, that is one of the safest places to increase your self-awareness. Because even if you are acting acting as a bona fide fool your therapist is not going to say you know you're being foolish instead they're going to ask a question around how you can increase your understanding around something and so um again i think people say that they're self-aware just because it sounds good but in, in reality they're not and if they were we probably wouldn't have some of the interpersonal issues that we're having in our workplaces or in our relationships with our spouses or in our relationships with our family or our children Many times people are just reacting 
and and that's because they have a feeling but they don't even know what the feeling is or they have a thought and they don't even know what the thought is they just do and then later they have to fix it and clean it up and you know that's when we're dealing with guilt and regret and all of that stuff and it's because maybe in that particular area of your life you lack some self-awareness which is perfectly fine you get to study yourself we should all be getting an opportunity to study ourselves we go to college and spend four years in undergrad to study a subject, right? But we never get that time to study ourselves. That's a great point. Not in the intentional way. When, um, when you said I'm self-aware, um, I, I was in management. I always tell my team like, there's extremist behavior. Pretty much will always be contradicted, right? So if you say I never lie, then you pretty much told me you lie. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and so if you say I'm working, I'm somewhat self-aware and I'm working on it. I think that makes more sense than just saying I'm, I'm woke, right? And I always say, yeah. I also tell people like, when you say you're woke, that means you're not woke, right? Because yeah. you're not a destination. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was having a conversation with somebody about that too. Whenever you tell people, you, you, you should not have to, you should not necessarily have to define who you are and what your experiences are. People should be able to see that in your behaviors, right? Like you shouldn't have to tell people I'm not a liar people should just start seeing that you don't really lie. You tell the truth even when it's uncomfortable. Babe, do I look fat in this dress? Yes, it's not flattering. Okay, now you have just proven you're not a liar, right? But if you say something like, oh, you know, you cute. <laughs> you a liar and you can't go around and tell anybody else that you're not a liar. <laughs> um, do you think that men are less self-aware than women? I can't say that for, for certain. I don't make those kind of generalizations. My life is so fluid in so many different ways that I, I would never say that. What I will say is that self-awareness also has a huge component to emotional awareness and emotional expression. And in our society, we give more permission for women to explore their emotions. Mm -hmm. So we give more permission for women to increase their self-awareness but we don't always give that permission to men. In fact, I believe that men are stereotyped at a greater way than women are. I do believe that women have a little bit more fluidity in some of the stereotypes that are placed on us, but masculinity, based off of the history of patriarchal societies, men can only be one way for them to feel comfortable as a man. And so even the exploration of emotions, although we're still working to kind of demystify that, uh, demythify that. I think the, the issue is that men just have not been raised or supported or reinforced in exploring certain elements of themselves. And because of that, they are lacking knowledge um, around certain elements of their self-awareness. I don't wanna say that they're naturally less aware than women. I want to say that our society puts men in a box that prevents them at different points for increasing their self-awareness. Hmm. So they don't give men permission to be honest or have right. view it as strength and vulnerability essentially. Yeah, yeah, because then men men doing that with other men, the the sometimes the response is, man, bro, what are you talking about? Like, you know, <laughs> and they say derogatory things about it, right? Like you're acting this way or you're being this way, right? And and the terms are always 
based off of femininity, right? Like, man, you all in your emotions, you acting like a girl. You know what I'm saying? Like that's dismissive to women's experiences. But what it's also saying is women are able to express themselves emotionally and men are not able to. And then when it comes to relationships, sometimes women say, I want a man who's emotionally aware or who's self-aware. But then when that man says that, women often push back and say, oh, you're being too sensitive or, you know, you acting like this or you're acting like that. And so men at different points are hearing messages that they can't, they can't express their emotions. So what's the point of knowing them if you can't even do anything with them? You know, yeah. it's, it's really a societal issue. It's not that, that their brain is wired where they can't increase their self-awareness is that society keeps, you know, depressing them and pushing them down not depressing in the clinical terms but pushing them down so that they don't have the space to explore their awareness they don't have the space to really explore themselves like even think about young men if a man wants to if a young man wants to express himself through his movement and his body because that's where he kind of feels connected with things you know what if it was a woman we put her in dance if it's a boy we tell him he has to go play soccer which has its own levels of aggression and things like that. And maybe that's not how he identifies with himself. Maybe that's not how he expresses himself, but, um, but we don't give the permission for that fluidity. And speaking of mental health, um, black people have historically been negatively affected by prejudice and discrimination in the healthcare system in the U S what do you think needs to happen to reduce the stigma attached to mental illness and especially for people of color? You know, my truth around that could be quite controversial and I sit and and I preface it by saying that I train counselors every day. That that's my job as faculty at Hopkins. Mm-hmm. And I recognize the level of biases that some folks have when it comes to working with people who are different than them. Yeah. It's not always intentional. Sometimes it's it is just what it is. What I think needs to happen is that more. Black people need to be entering into the mental health field as providers, because what we know is that people tend to be attracted to people who look like them. There's this sense that you can relate. So what I would hope is that we see more Black people, more Brown people, more Indigenous people, more, more people who identify as colored we see more people, and not colored in the old traditional term, but you know, as we talk about people of color, mm. um, that we see more people that are in the LGBTQ community coming in and being providers. Because as we increase our number of providers that are diverse, then yeah. we also increase the number of people that we attract to our practice and to the field of counseling. When I first started off, you know, I remember people being like, oh, you're really a therapist? Like, I didn't know, do you get a lot of clients? And I'm like, why don't you come in and check me out? Come in for an hour and see if you like what I do, right? And then they would come in and next thing you know, they're my client because my style is more relaxed, but they also think that I can relate to them in a lot of ways. And there's some ways I really can relate, right? But because we have our intersections of identities, there's some things that I don't always relate to, but then there's many things that I do relate to as well. So I guess that's a long answer to your question, but but I would like to see more clinicians of color coming into the field, yeah, to represent themselves, but also to represent their communities and to attract people that look like them and are like them. No, I agree, definitely. Um, speaking of intersectionality, you have done a lot of research around this, especially in the workplace. 
Um, what are some advice you give leaders on how they can better address intersectionality in the workplace? Yeah, yeah, yeah. My dissertation, in fact, was on intersectionality. It was based off of um, race and gender in professional settings. So, you know, I, I think that in our workplaces, we put so much emphasis on productivity of service or productivity of product and not enough on the human essence and experience. You know, we're always thinking about how can I be a better leader so my person could produce more or how can I be a better leader so I could get more out of this particular experience with this, this colleague, as opposed to like just wanting to get to know people like who are you, you know what I mean, who are you, where do you come from, like how do you define yourself, like what makes you you. And as I get to know that about folks, I actually find that they that we have a better experience, right? Like we we enjoy each other more when I could just set aside time just to get to know you and you could get to know me. And there's no ulterior motives other than we are working together. We are spending eight, nine, 10 hours together. Let us know each other. You know, when I look back on my, my dissertation, I actually created a model called the culturally intersected clinical supervision model because my work my professional development is around clinical supervision, mm. but that's our workplace area. But what I found through the research with um, all these amazing women who were participants with me, it was that they just want to be seen. They yeah. want to know that they themselves as a person is valued, not just what they are able to produce, not just, you know, what client feedback is, not just how quickly, you know, again, we move through these products or these services, but that their bosses, their supervisors, their colleagues actually see them and they value what they see. They're not being dismissed, but they're actually being elevated. Yeah. In that particular model, there's 33 different skills that supervisors can be using when we're looking at the intersections of race and gender. And they're categorized in three different elements in terms of like, thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. Um, and I could definitely share that with you and share with your audience if they wanna look at it. But it's 33 skills divided in three categories that look at what makes people feel safe at work when they are double minorities. Is and that on like, website by chance? You know, maybe I should get it on my website, right? <laughs> it's not on there right now. Let me make that note. I could get them to put it on the website. Okay. Yeah, that'd be great. Uh -huh. so if um if somebody wants to go to your website, what is your website? Because eventually it's gonna be up there. Yeah. It my website is onyxtherapygroup.com. So O-N-Y-X therapygroup.com. Yeah. Uh, people often sometimes people don't necessarily go that route. And I say just Google my name too, right? Because that's one of the first things that's going to come up is our website. And my name is, uh, my last name is Plummer, P-L-U-M-M-E-R. First name, Linnell. Sometimes that's harder to spell. But if you just put in Dr. L. Plummer, then I come up. And so does my website. But it's Onyx Therapy Group. And we're on IG and stuff like that, too. So now that you mentioned that, I'll, I'll go ahead and put it on the website. And I'll put it on our IG page as well. Our IG is Onyx Therapy Group also. Okay, great. Over the recent months, a lot of companies have pledged to, to be better supporters of BPIOC. It's funny because I always say it's great that we're actually putting attention to this, you know, and I see large companies are pushing out donations to various communities, but I also think they need to invest a lot in their internal employees, right? And so yeah. 
if you want to, if you want to donate, it's amazing, but you also have to walk the walk, you know, and I think, um, yeah. what are some things that companies should offer in terms of mental health and for their employees, given with all the trauma that we've gone through this year? In terms of action, I think that what people need to, what supervisors and leaders need to be offering is the access to these mental health days that don't require a doctor's note. So if I say, you know, today I just woke up and I feel horrible and I need a day to myself that that can just be done, right? Like we don't have to make somebody feel bad about it. We don't have to ask all these additional questions because again, as people are increasing their own self-awareness, they know whether they're going to be able to be productive that day or not. Yeah. I, I know whether some days I'm going to be productive. I know whether I'm going to be able to knock out most things on my to-do list or if I'm going to be good with just getting one thing done and have to feel good about that. I think um, we need to also find ways to be flexible, especially while we're in COVID, flexible with what's happening at home. Some people like myself are at home with our children and and our animals and things like that. And we have to manage all of that while also being productive. So keeping in mind that that feels very overwhelming when you have to manage your child's school experience, manage your spouse, prepare for dinner and all of that kind of stuff while sitting at home. Folks are not always paying attention to what's happening in the meeting, right? They're like distracted by other areas of their life. So giving people permission, you know, um, I was reading an article about peak performance, peak work performance, and most people are productive for productive in work, but about four hours a day on average. Mm -hmm. So even though they're required to be at work for eight hours, they're not actually producing everything for half of that time. Yeah. So what would happen if we actually paid attention to our employees peak hours and let them work during those peak hours, as opposed to just making them work from nine to five. If I'm more productive right. from three to seven, can right. I just work from three to seven? As long as I tell you that I'm, as long as you see that I'm able to produce everything that I would have produced if you thought I was working between nine and five. Yeah. Um, so those flexibility in work days or mental health days, those flexibility in terms of, you know, recognizing that we're getting overwhelmed at home you know, allowing folks to work on their peak hours as well, because all of that makes people feel seen, they make people feel heard, they make people feel valued, and then they take their work a bit more seriously. Yeah, I also think there needs to be this mind shift around, if I tell you I need to take a day off today because I'm feeling stressed or whatever, that you let me do it and don't put judgment on it, right? And so realize that it's not, it doesn't define who I am, it defines what I'm feeling in the moment, right? Yeah. And then if you think about it a second way is if you give me that day off, I always say sometimes you got to slow down to speed up. You might see more productivity for me if you get yeah. yeah, because otherwise I'm going to burn out, right? And who wants to have an employee that's burnt out just because you want them to at work that yeah. day, but they're not actually producing anything. I, I love to also work with companies that um, that have that incorporate mental health into their practices. I was visiting, um, I was in Austria a couple of years ago in Vienna, where of course we call that the home of modern day psychoanalysis. Recognizing of course that that's a cultural mishap, right? Because mental health was forming all over the world in the continent of Africa, in Asia, you know, in South America, we, they just didn't have access to publication. So that's why their theories didn't get publicized. Mm -hmm. But in, in, for Freud and Jung and Adler, who were all there in Vienna, 
what has become part of their culture is that just like they have a lunch hour, they also have a mental health hour. And so they can go and go to their therapist during their work day and think about how that would make you feel, right? Like you just had a a rough morning with your spouse. You know, you're about to go to your therapy session at 11 o'clock. You come back at 12 o'clock and you feel relaxed. You're ready to take on the world. Now, true indeed, a good therapist is going to make sure that you feel good at the end of your session, even if it's not perfect. Sometimes people do walk away from their therapy sessions and they don't feel too high, but that's, that's the therapist's fault, not necessarily the client's fault. Yeah. But what would happen if we incorporated mental health aspects into our work? When I worked at a a school in DC years ago, I advocated for the staff members to be able to come and see me during their breaks. And what we saw, it was a decline in their, a decline in their absentees, a decline in uh, an increase in their productivity, a decline in discipline reports because they have more patience for students um, yeah. And that, and a higher level of satisfaction. So we had a, a a very low turnover rate. So I kind of did a roller coaster with some of these highs and some of these lows, but it was extremely beneficial. And then the last thing would be for employers when the HR department is looking at benefits packages to be really mindful of which insurance companies are um, really taking care of the mental health needs of um, of their clients. So some of these folks are. Some employers are trying to pay low, um, low amounts for insurance, but what's happening is that their, their employees can't find quality therapists because the therapists don't take certain insurances that, um, that make things complicated for mental health providers. So going for some of these insurance companies that really do support um, mental health. That's a great idea. How do leaders, so for our last question, um, because I want to make sure that um, we're looking at the time is that how do leaders, how can leaders work to reduce um, work-related stress and anxiety by reframing what it means to be productive, productive, to be productive? I think that's really a question, but those, that goes back to the human experience. It goes back to the EQ question, uh, the emotional intelligence EQ. We, we use the term EQ and EI interchangeably. It goes back to that question because what needs to happen is that the supervisor or the leader and the staff member needs to be having conversations with them with between themselves, like with each other around yeah. what does productivity look like for you? What does productivity look like for me? And how can we come with some kind of mutual agreement? Indeed, the supervisor may have more pressure to define what productivity looks like. But when you place that on someone without understanding of their experience, you're likely going to fail. You're not going to get what they what you want. So my skill set may be in marketing. And you may want me to address three projects a day when I know that the better quality is going to come if I could address two a day, right? You're not going to get three projects out of me, but you're going to get two highly quali- high quality products out of me. Mm-hmm. Can we have that conversation? And if we have that conversation, it's going to reduce my anxiety because I'm not going to feel overwhelmed or overworked. It's not going to re- it's going to reduce some of my depression symptoms because I'm not going to feel misunderstood or unseen or unheard. It's going to allow me to be more assertive. It's going to allow me to advocate for myself. It's going to allow me to feel valued. And all of those things play a role in our mental health as well. So I really think it becomes these conversations. It's also why we sometimes look at 
business practices and we see how small businesses do really well. And it's because they have more interaction with their employees on a day-to-day -day basis, where in corporate America, it becomes more about product production, right? So, but what happens if we take some of those small business behaviors and mentalities and bring them into large business? What would we see differently in terms of the mental health needs? Nobody is going to fall through the cracks because everybody is going to have had relationships and conversations with their supervisors on a consistent way so that they so that they feel seen and they, they feel heard and, and they can say, these are my peak hours and this is what productivity looks like for me. And can we negotiate this? Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Great, great way. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yes. Yeah. I love your insights. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Thank you for having me. I'm always excited to be with you guys. You can learn more about our amazing guests and get show notes at consciouslyunbiased.com slash listen. And we want to hear from you. Please subscribe and rate Breaking the Bias on iTunes and Spotify. And drop us a note to let us know if there's a topic that you'd really want to hear about or a guest that you'd love to see on the show. Thanks for listening to Breaking the Bias.